So tonight I want to tell a story about a monk that I met and uh, my history with him. After I'd been in Burma for about four and a half years and had been doing my practice, one day these two Burmese women came to visit me in my cottage and they spoke English and they said, oh, you've got to meet our teacher. Everybody, every family in Burma has a monk or a Sayadaw, an elder monk who is the family uh, spiritual guide, psychotherapist, favorite uncle, confidant, <laughs> who serves many roles to that family. And so I knew what they meant. They wanted me to go meet their family, their family's monk, teacher. So I said, oh no, I, I'm, I've met many monks, I don't need to go meet anymore. And they said, oh no, you, you really want to meet this monk. And I said, mm, okay. <laughs> and so the appointed day came and they came to pick me up in a, in a truck. And uh, we were going to drive to the suburb where he lived. And they, on the way, they told me about him. And they said that about 40 years before that, this was in 89, yeah, 49, yeah. 40 years before that, he had been invited to be the meditation teacher at the meditation center, the Mahasi Sayadaw Meditation Center, when it first opened in 1949. Now, Mahasi Sayadaw is the grandfather of this tradition of practice because he taught lay people, householders like ourselves, and uh, he had a very effective method for really getting uh, instruction and practicing effectively. So this monk uh, had been invited to be the teacher there, and uh, when the monastery opened, or meditation center opened, he taught. And uh, the, the method was so effective that there just a lot of people started coming to practice there. And after a few years, the, the responsibilities for teaching were just so great. There were so many hundreds of people coming that he asked Mahasi Saito if he could have permission to leave because he really didn't want to be involved in the large-scale ecclesiastical responsibilities. And Mahasi Saito said no. Now, this was a monk that was on his own and independent and you know, but somehow he had a relationship with Mahasi Sayadaw that he had to have his permission in order to leave, so he couldn't leave. So he continued teaching, and a few more later is when the meditation center got even more busy, more people coming, and he had more teaching responsibilities. He asked Mahasi Sayadaw again if he could be relieved of his responsibilities teaching and go on his own way to practice. And again, Mahasi Sayadaw said no. After he'd been there for 10 years, the center was booming and there was other teachers and it was just a huge megaplex, if you will. And again, he, it really wasn't his lifestyle to be so busy and involved. And so he asked Mahasi Sayadaw if he could leave and this time Mahasi Sayadaw said, okay. So he left the meditation center and he went to a place near the northern suburb of Rangoon 
where Rangoon kind of met the jungle and he got a little, like a one acre, I don't even know if it was one acre, one acre plot of land to, for a monastery, his place. And they were telling me that he had been on this little plot of land for 30 years, just doing his own practice. And that he didn't really teach so much as he just lived there and if somebody came and wanted instruction, he would teach them. So what happened is that people who had practiced with him at the meditation center in town heard that he was up there, so they moved up there to be near him, and uh, they would go to work during the day, do their work, and then at night they would come over to the monastery to practice. So he had this big, uh, they built a big uh, meditation hall for them, and hundreds of people would come every night. So. They would work during the day and he would come and give them a talk at night while they would practice late into the night. Then they'd go home and go to bed, get, get up, go to work, come back the next evening. And uh, he just lived there simply with a few monks, just a, for five, six, six monks. And he didn't allow improvements to be made at the center, just wooden buildings and no concrete pathways, no electricity, no phone, just really living like the monks at the time of the Buddha. And over the course of the 30 years that he had been there, so many people had moved there to be with him that now his little one acre of forest was in the middle of this vast urban sprawl, suburban sprawl. And it was just hundreds of people would come to practice each night. So they said he was pretty special, like, he knew what was going on before you opened your mouth. You know, he knew what you came for and knew what you brought for Dana, and he had a very powerful mind. So we went, and when we got there, it was hot and dusty in the suburb. But when we went into the, it was like a little piece of jungle forest. And it was very quiet, very peaceful, and there was nobody around. So we went to his little cottage, which was small, tiny, but when we went in, he was sitting in a chair, he got up, he sat on the floor. And uh, the women talked to him a little while, and then he asked me what I was doing. So I said I'd been in Burma for about four and a half years, and I was uh, just preparing to go back to the States pretty soon. And I asked him for advice, what I should do. And he said, if you continue to do your practice, everything else will be okay. I said, okay. But somehow I was really struck by his demeanor and his uh, simplicity and the integrity with which he lived the monastic life so simply. And the obvious uh, goodwill that he had among people in the surrounding village. So I asked him if I could come practice with him for a while. And uh, I didn't speak Burmese, he didn't speak English. And he said, oh yeah, sure, come. And at that time, you couldn't get permission in Burma to do anything. So uh, you couldn't, you, you, you had to register, every foreigner had to register where they stayed every night. And you couldn't stay in only approved places, monasteries. And his wasn't approved monastery, but I decided I was gonna go anyway. So I went, and um, when I got there, this was a, a week later, so got there, 
he took me to uh, out the back door of his cootie cottage and to a room that was about 60 feet long and about six feet wide with a bed at one end and a toilet at the other. And the windows were set on the sides of the building that you could see the ground outside, but you couldn't see horizontal. And that's where I was going to stay to practice for a couple of weeks so that I could just do my sitting at one end and walking in the building and I didn't have to see anybody and nobody could see me. Which was, sounds kind of ideal, huh? Right. <laughs> so I said, okay, so what time is alms round in the morning? Because I had to go out with the monks to get the alms so I could eat. And he said, oh, don't you bother coming on alms round. You should just devote yourself to practice. Uh, I and the other monks will go on arms round and we'll share our food with you. I said, okay. So I went in the room and I had two weeks or so to just practice. And so you know how it is with practice. You get going, you're really enthusiastic when you get started and after about four or five days, you're kind of like fed up. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I was like oh, a little restless or something. I don't know, can't remember just what. But I figured I wanted to go out <laughs> and kind of walk, a, walk around the monastery. So I said, well, I don't see anything wrong with that. So I went to the door to go out and walk around the monastery. And when I opened the door, he was standing right there. <laughs> I said, right, okay. Hello. I guess I'm staying in. <laughs> So I went back inside and I practiced um, another week or so and got kind of fed up. <laughs> and I wanted to go outside again, walk around. And so I went to the door to go out and open the door. He was standing right there. <laughs> so you kind of get the picture, huh? You know. There are no secrets in your mind, none whatsoever. So it was like that. I was practicing, and when it got near the end of my time there, he said to me one day, he said, you know, uh, tomorrow you can go on arms round with me. This is a couple of days before the end. And that night, there was a village festival, as they have them in Burma. And they put up loudspeakers, and then they chant, and they raise money, and they do all kinds of stuff all night, loud, over loudspeakers. You can't possibly sleep. It's just incessant. And monks are doing some chanting, and the village folks are doing, I don't know, it's just loud. And so all night this was going on. In the morning, you know, when it's time to get up and go on alms round, they stop. And so I was going to go on alms round with them that day, so on my robes and you have to wear your robes in a certain way in a formal a formal dressing of the robes and so I went out with the other monks and lined up and there's about 10 monks maybe that day and uh, he's he's there and he looks all the monks over to make sure that their robes are done right and that they're presentable and they got their bowls and everything so we line up and we're heading out of the monastery and he's at the head of the line. I'm a back about number five or six, not because of my seniority, but because I was foreigner, I guess. And um, so we came walking out to the 
the path in the forest. And we came to the edge of the, where the, met the suburb, where the, his monastery ended and then the suburb. And when he got there, he stepped aside and he waved the other monks past. And when I came, he pulled me aside and he waved all the monks to go out that way. And then he turned around and motioned for me to follow him out the back way, a different way. And when I looked to see where the monks were going, the road outside was lined up with hundreds of people waiting to offer uh, food and flowers and things that monks can receive each day. I thought, wow. So we went out the back way. We walked through the monastery and went out the back back gate. And we were walking on these, you know, ox cart tracks that just dusty ox cart tracks and through these bamboo, a village of bamboo huts, really. And it was no different than people lived at the time of the Buddha, really. And it was so quiet and so peaceful, and we were just two monks going on alms round. It was really a wonderful feeling. Uh, and so we walked for maybe 10 or 15 minutes on roads like that, pathways. And then we turned a corner and we came in view of a little, uh, a few, a little village where there's some shops, you know, where you can get cakes and tea and stuff like that. And somebody there, some little boy there, saw that there were monks coming on alms round. So they say, oh, Ponji Labi, Ponji Labi, means the monks are coming on alms round. So everybody around, they look to see where the monks are, and they all get something. They get a little cake, they get a uh, plastic bag full of tea or something, a bowl, a little thing of rice. And we went to the first where the first person was standing. We stood there with our bowls, and all these people line up to come stuff in our bowls, whatever they could get from the tea shops and around there. And uh, the bowls got, our bowls got full. So one of the shopkeepers gave us some plastic, gave the temple boys some plastic bags. We came, dumped our bowls in there and more people coming and they filled up the bowls again and we dumped our bowls and into plastic bags. So then we finally, we take off and we got the little train of temple boys behind us carrying these plastic bags full of stuff. <laughs> Well, we went on the alms round that day, like two hours. And it was just everywhere we went, there were just dozens of people wanting to uh, pay their respects to him and to support him and to honor him with their uh, devotion and their uh, gifts. And maybe they were kind of fascinated to see a foreign monk too, I don't know. But it was really, uh, it was very humbling and it was very inspiring to think that uh, he was living like monks live at the time of the Buddha. It really felt like he was a, a true representative of the Buddha's way of life. And when we got back to the monastery, of course, there was piles and piles of food because the other monks had gone another route. And I later found out that the festival that night had announced that this Saido was going to be going on arms round on a certain route. And that's why all the people were there waiting for him to go that way. But he decided not to. He went <laughs> another way. And uh, so there was just mountains of food at the monastery. And this is the way it is most days. Much more food received, then the monks can eat. And of course, monks can't keep food overnight, so 
after they eat, then all the rest of the food gets distributed to the, the poor people in the village every day. And uh, so I was there, and a couple of days I went on alms round like that with him. And then uh, I had to go back to my monastery. I went back to my monastery, and he, uh, every year, I'd heard that every year he, even though he lived there, he would disappear for two months, five months, six months, eight months to go to another place in southern Burma where he would do his own practice in some mountain, I heard, but I didn't know much about it, but just that he had another place where he would go where he was, could do more of his own practice. And the next day after I left, he took off and went on, went down there. So when I come back to the States, the executive director here asked me to write about, write, write an article. So I wrote an article about him, and I called it uh, Living Tradition. And I talked about him and my experience there, and uh, it was printed in a news, uh, the IMS newspaper. And a few years after that, uh, some Buddhist publication society in Sri Lanka saw the article and asked if they could print it into a little booklet. So I said, oh, sure, go ahead. So I never saw it, but I guess it got printed. And uh, then it was about 10 years after I had been there to see him, uh, Kamala wanted to go to Burma for the first time and ordain. So I said, okay, I'll take you back to Burma and we'll go to the monastery you can ordain. And while I was there, I wanted to see I wanted to find out where he was, you know, if he was still around. And uh, so I went to my old monastery, and they said, oh, the Shweyumin, this is the Shweyumin Saira, Gold Cave Hermit Saira that I'm talking about. He, oh, he's in the hospital. He went to the hospital last night because he wasn't feeling well. And so one of the trans, one of the people that used to translate for me was a doctor, and he said, I'm going to go to the hospital, and if you want to see him, you can come with me. So I said, okay, let's go. So I went to the hospital with him. Now I'm 10 years later. I'm no longer a monk. I'm a lay person in clothes. And he's in the hospital bed, kind of sitting up. And I walk in with the doctor translator. And I do my bows. And he looks at me. He just goes, zoom. He goes, you're the monk that wrote that article about me, aren't you? <laughs> I said, I'm sorry, yes, I, you know, yeah, I did. And he says, oh, since that time he got a uh, whole new monastery. <laughs> he said, uh, so many people, I don't know if they read the article or what, but somehow a lot of people started coming around and a lot of foreigners. And uh, there was too many for coming for his little monastery. So... I'm going to jump, I'm going to skip what he said to me. But a few years after that, I was doing a self-retreat over at the Forest Refuge for a month or two or something. And uh, one day I come out uh, over there to go to lunch, and there were these two Asian women, maybe they're Burmese or Thai, Sri Lanka, uh, Vietnamese, Vietnamese, Vietnamese. And when I came to go through the lunch line, they said, oh, there, there he is, there he is. Making, pointing to me like 
I was supposed to know them or something. I didn't know them. But I got curious. What are they talking? What what's up? They were, the, they were the people who were donating the meal that day. And uh, so I went into the kitchen to, to ask them who they were. And they said, oh, oh, we're so grateful for you. We're so thankful for you. You know, you wrote that article about uh, the Shweyum Insider. Oh, when I read that article, I knew this is the one. This is the monk for me. And uh, this is a woman from Maryland, somewhere in Maryland. And she says, I had to go see him. I went to Burma to see him. And I took all my friends. And he had such a small monastery that we went back to the States. We raised all the money to build him a new monastery. I said, oh, <laughs> I like that old monastery. It was really nice. But he had this new monastery. And so he was telling me that he had this new monastery. And because he was quite old, he, he had uh, appointed, appointed a kind of a, another teacher to take over after he passed away. Because now he was 90-something. And... Uh, so I didn't go to his new monastery that year, but later I heard about this new teacher, so I wanted to go practice with him. And I went to the monastery a few years later to practice with the new teacher after the Shweyumin. The Shweyumin Sayadaw died. He passed away at 93. So I went to the new monastery to see what it was all about. And I went to practice with the teacher there, Saito Utejaniya. So Utejaniya is a successor of that monk that I met the first time, the Shuyuma and Saito. And I had a good relationship with uh, Saito Utejaniya too over the past 10, 10 years maybe. And um, Saito Utejaniya has a, 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 a mon monastery now, and he's teaching. And where he sits in his monastery, in his room, up above him he has two pictures of the Shweyum Insider. One when he's 91 and one when he's 93. And he says, you look at those two pictures, same or different? Mm -hmm. He always asks the question. And of course you take a look, casual look, you say, oh, same, same, same person. He said, no, you look, you look careful. If you look, you can see a little difference. And he said that before now, Shweyumin had been Shweyumin Saira had been teaching for since uh, at least 1949, and this was 2000 something. So he'd been teaching 60 years maybe. And he says no. He says uh, his teacher Shweyumin Saira changed the way he taught when he was 91. I thought that was really something. It's someone had, who had so much experience teaching and had so much uh, respect as a teacher was still growing, was still learning, was still acquiring his own wisdom and knowledge and had the courage, had the flexibility of mind even to change the way he taught when he was 91, two years before he passed away. That's a long, enduring mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, we should we should reflect carefully on the life of that monk, the Shweyumin Saido, because of the quality of his practice and his endurance and his uh, willingness to keep growing, keep practicing and learning about the nature of the mind and 
really developing wisdom. You know, even until the very day we we pass away. So the, this kind of wisdom is not something you get on a nine-day retreat. You get some, but there's more to get. So we want to really work through our practice to develop this kind of mind that is willing to keep learning about how to live with this mind and this body wisely right up until the day we die.